Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Giving you an extra little bonus show this week. We're filling it right back in. We had some gaps back earlier this fall, but now I'm just recording shows like crazy and I want to get them out to you. So got a great show for you today that's in a totally different realm, still flying, but it's with Hannah Jane Williams. She's not a pilot, but she studies soaring birds. She's in her postdoctoral research project at the Max Planck Institute in Southern Germany. Her back door is the Northern Alps. And she started looking at paragliders going, I wonder if these pilots can answer questions we've been trying to study for years with soaring birds. And they put all kinds of, you'll learn about this in the show, but they put all kinds of trackers and little gizmos on the birds that send back all the data. And they're trying to figure out how birds make decisions in the skies. And Adrian, who I had on the show, who you heard about flying off all the volcanoes in Mexico, said, you gotta talk to these folks. This research they're doing is fascinating and birds fly a lot better than we do. And I'm sure we can learn something. And I really did. We had a great talk. I think you're gonna love it. Uh, before we get to it, a couple things of housekeeping. The first is the talk I had with Kirsty Cameron. I talked about the Xeno and how it has proven itself to be a pretty safe wing and a good entry level two line glider. And quite a few people reached out to me after that and said, great podcast, but I think that was maybe not the best way to say that. There have been a lot of accidents on the Xeno and probably I don't think that has anything to do with the wing. It has proven itself to be a very solid two-liner, like I said in the show. And this isn't a knock on that wing whatsoever. It's probably just a lot. I think it's one of their best-selling wings. A lot of people are on it and we have accidents in this sport. So probably just numbers and statistics are very difficult in our sport because every country uh, models it differently, takes in the information differently and chalks it up differently. And most accidents probably just go unreported. So. But several people did reach out and said, man, I've seen a lot of accidents on the Xeno. I don't know about that. And I, again, I don't think that's a knock on the wing, but we probably should have just been more clear that it's still a two-liner. It still can bite. They're much harder re to recover. You know, recovering a high aspect wing and two-liner wing is way different. It doesn't have nearly the passive safety of a lower level wing. So keep that in mind. I know you all know that anyway, but just wanted to make that clarification. The other thing is until Friday the 10th, if you buy advanced paragliding, if you don't have it yet, so between the first and the 10th, anybody that buys it in that realm in that period of time will be in to win a private day's coaching with me here in Sun Valley, Idaho sometime in the next year, whenever it works for you. Or if that doesn't work logistically for you, then we'll do three one hour Zoom calls. So if you don't have the book yet, get it, get all tuned up for the season. There's lots of great uh, advice and information in there and Cross Country Magazine did a wonderful job putting it together. It's really quite beautiful. I love how it came out. It's their best-selling book apparently of the year and yeah, a little shameless plug for the book. So go to xcmag.com forward slash shop to get the book and be in, in this raffle to win a day's coaching or if you're in the States you can get free shipping on a book directly from me. Just go to cloudbasedmayhem.com forward slash shop. Okay, let's get into the show with Hannah Jane Williams. I really enjoyed this and it's just fun to talk about different aspects of our sport in, a, in this time in a completely different way. So we all have a, a passionate love of birds. We're trying to be birds ourselves and Hannah studies birds. So enjoy this show. Cheers. 
Anna, I think we've been trying to do this for, I don't know, over a year, but I appreciate Adrian giving me the shout out and introducing me to you and your group. And thanks for sticking with me through all this uh, crazy uh, lifestyle stuff that we've both been having. And I appreciate you being on the Mayhem. That's all right. Show. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to be here. Tell me about, yeah, I mean, uh, your project, let's just, let's get into it. Well, tell me about your project because I don't often have non-pilots on the show, but this is, uh, you're definitely somebody I want to talk to. And I think the audience is going to really enjoy this. Um, so I, I'm a movement ecologist that's normally looking at the soaring flight of birds. Um, and recently started thinking about other things that are in the air and that's gone over to paragliders. And uh, my project right now is I'm interested in how paragliders may be looking at each other to find the air um, and think about how birds might be doing the same thing if they're watching each other to find air flows. And I'm interested in how you guys manage to find the air, but specifically what you're looking at when you're flying. Mm, fascinating, because you know, the air is uh, famously quite invisible. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of the magic of, of what we do is, is trying to see what's not often really clear. So, and do you study any particular types, uh, all, all types of soaring birds, or is there a, a, a kind of a one species focus? It's gone through different uh, species, different places. I did my PhD, and that was on different vulture species in South Africa and uh, Europe. And then you move through, and I did a postdoc that was on the Andean condor um, in Swansea University with Emily Shepherd carrying on with some research of hers. And then now I've moved to um, Germany and looking at different, the same species, but we also work on storks here as well. And um, Every all of them are soaring birds. They're still using the air, but they have different morphometrics that change how they could be using the air. The rules are the same, so I can jump between species and now jump to people. Mm. So, I mean, take me through how a study works. Well, for, firstly, where are you right now? And we're looking at this office building. I, I saw you when you were walking around earlier. It's it's big. Is this a is this a are, is everybody there working on what you're doing or is everybody working on different animals and different projects? So I'm at the Max Planck Institute for Animal Behavior in the south of Germany on Lake Constance. Um, and here we have, it's, it used to be an institute for ornithology that was specifically interested in birds and migration, really. But it's grown and now I'm sharing a building with a load of primatologists that are interested in how different groups of primates operate. Um, there's people working on storks around me, on eagles, and then we have a, a group that's interested in how the, the dynamics of a group work in people or fish. So there's some collective behavior stuff and some movement stuff. Mine kind of does a little bit of both of those things, interested in how you move together. Well, how did you get interested in birds? Um, that's well. I wish I had a beautiful answer for you, but you go down the path and you end up where you end up because you just enjoy each step along the way. So I started mm. with uh, studying killer whales and humpback whales in Scotland, and was looking at how they operate as a group, 
and then went and, and did some work with some gannets and seabirds and it just took me further down this route. All of those things have had in common that we use technology to see how an animal moves without having to observe it. And both the water and the air lend themselves to those, to those for different reasons. Um, and so mm. whales and birds is kind of, it's a, it's a good place to be if you're interested in movement and have this technology. You mentioned you worked with, you worked on vultures down in South Africa. I had this real privilege of being able to go through a kind of a rescue center when we were doing a project in Malawi a few years ago in South Africa. And I learned a lot about vultures and just how endangered they are. Is it, is, is what you're doing depressing? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. No, so when you're thinking about how an animal's moving in the air, it, I find it very exciting. So it's not directly depressing. When you think about mm. the pressures that are acting on them, then it can become a bit depressing. So the vulture problem being that there's a lot of poisoning events. And as soon as one vulture lands a poisoned carcass, then hundreds of them land and they're all dead, really, and affected by it. And when I was in South Africa, there was one event like that. Um, and it just it wipes out a group, a local group. And mm. so that is de depressing, yeah. But recently been moving into other areas of research that it's exciting. So you that gets forgotten about a little bit and you have to bring yourself back to the general picture. Just because I'm so clueless on, on how these things, how these kind of studies get funded is the Max Planck, is that all, is that all grants? Is it government? How, how does it, do you apply and then you get kind of free reign to go with it for a bunch of years? Yeah, that's exactly that. So every three years, every five years, you would apply for another big general project that will have some link to what you did previously. And then you would get funding for research, for salaries, for students to join that. And that's how I, you end up going down the path because it's a, a balance of the money available and uh, what's uh, your drive. So together, the two things influence where you end mm. up. Yeah. How do you study birds? How do you, how do you gather the, the data on, I'm assuming, lift and drag and all the things that affect soaring now how does how do you do it uh so the, i use biologgers and biologgers are like your phone and they have different sensors in them and you attach them it'd be awesome if your people could see but i have loads i have stuff around me they're like a little box that's full of technology inside of different senses. Well, it looks like a Vario. Well, this is for a paraglider. For, for, those of you, for those of you who are listening, yeah, I was going to say that it looks just like a little Vario. It doesn't do the beeping quite as much, but it's, right. it's usually um, collecting different types of movement data and you attach it to your animal, let it fly off, and then either different schedules different recording schedules you might collect it a week later two weeks or a couple of years later or even it's on the animal for a lifetime but they all have very different designs and obviously we don't want to tag anything with something heavy for a long period of time so you balance what you're asking of a tag and the questions that you want to answer yeah so this is a tag that i would actually put on a paraglider but the technology is actually exactly the same as what I would put on a condor. 
are you able to kind of cross-reference, okay, you put it on a condor in a in a place that condors fly and put it on a paraglider in a place that paragliders fly. I would think a hang glider or something might be more, you know, a little more matching in ability in terms of speed and stuff, but they are you able to go, wow, this paraglider sucks compared to that condor in terms of finding lines and and just using currents of air? It's interesting. I haven't so I've just started working with um, a group of paragliders. Um, you've actually had one of them on your show, Malin Lobb, mm. and I haven't yet looked at their data. But we're we're in a collaboration where he's helping me, the team's helping me figure out how birds could be moving together. But in return, I want to give him some stuff back that could help them figure out how to fly better, or if there's some yeah, which you'll share with, that with me. Let's see where I get. I'll take commissions, take different orders. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I can't really tell you how to fly better, but I can say I can give you averages in the same way that we compare. We look at flight performance in birds, and maybe that could influence your decisions in flight, but also your decisions of how you operate together. I hope there's some feedback mm. between the two that would help me understand birds and help paragliders understand their flights as well. In your research, what's the biggest driver of where a bird goes? Is it their own unique feel of the sky or is it how they're operating in a group dynamic? Can you tell stuff like that? that just um, we don't know. So that, that's our, the thing that we're most interested in is predicting where animals go. And mm. to do that, we have to understand the decisions at each point of movement. If you decide to turn left or right, if you decide to fly for a, a great distance in one direction, right, um, and where you're going, why you're moving, there's a lot of unanswered questions. So space use is a big topic within animal ecology um, and movement decisions. Now, obviously, every day, they're going to be moving between their rest sites and their foraging sites. So food is a big driver of movement. Mm. But then on a longer term, it might be migration and that you're moving from one hemisphere to another, probably for food and for uh, safety or for warmth. So there's these different drivers at different scales and trying to find out what's happening at each decision point is what we're interested in. Yeah, tough to get inside the mind of a bird. Yeah. What bird have you studied that has the longest migration pattern? And is that is that therefore the hardest one to study because they're not around as much? So the the longest migrations are often of shorebirds that are going from uh the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, but then you also get round trip migrations with less of a migration, but long distance trips where you're circumnavigating the, the Antarctic for an albatross, for example. So they're long distances. It doesn't make them harder to study because these tags should always follow them and mm. work over that time. But what it does mean is that you have to have uh, batteries that are going to last a long time, fill that whole migration period. So you probably look for simpler data if you are tagging an animal for a long time. So it's the whole package is smaller and the story is a bit simpler. 
Is this is this the tag you put on that little device you just showed me? Obviously, that's for the paraglider, but the tags you use for the birds, is this something, do you need to retrieve it at some point to be able to get the data or can it send it back as it, it's going? You know, is it a, mm-hmm. a is it a, a capsule for a, an astronaut capsule or well, what am I trying to say? You know, they're, they're getting the feedback all the time as it's going through space. Are you doing the same thing or you got to get it back? We have a bit of both. And again, it all depends on your animal and the question that you're interested in. So with the condors, um, Swansea University, they build their own tags that you need called daily diaries. And that's what they're doing. They're making a record of daily movements and daily patterns. Um, and those tags you have to retrieve. So they devised some really awesome ways of getting tags back from animals. Like the condors have automatic release systems and awesome people out in the Andes what? that go and um, find those tags once they've dropped off an animal. They have this automatic release. But then Whoa. other things, you manage to get them to send the data back to you via mobile phone networks or satellites and usually that's simpler data because of the amount of power that's required to send data so if you're interested in very fine scale movements you have to collect the tag and so the daily diaries are recording at like 40 times a second we want to know the the physics of movement whereas if you want to know a migration route and get gps tracks through um, going from the northern to the southern hemisphere, then you could send the data back to you, but get simpler data back. What What is your loss or destruction rate? Imagine there are not many. If you send 10 out, how many do you get back? So with the condors, the, there was a, a learning curve on how you got them back. And so they dropped off. How do you then find them once they have dropped off? And every tag back is a win completely. And hard one. That was quite a small percentage given the um, the effort involved with going to find a tag. Mm. And then with other animals that return to a nest site, for example, that are a nest site faithful, the percentage of the likelihood of getting your tag back is very high. But that's another thing that we factor into how long you want it to be on the animal. If uh, When I was mm. working with whales, for example, we'd have a tag on for a few hours um, to try and get basic, not basic, it's complex movement and behavior, but a, a nice basic understanding of what they're doing during the day. So the tags pop off automatically a few hours later. And that's because we don't mm. want the animal to start swimming off to a place where we could never find it and get the tag back. So it's, it's this balance thinking about what the animal's going to do, how predictable is its movement to be able to get the tag back if we need to retrieve it. Do you have a favorite bird? Can I ask that? <laughs> you like, can. No, sure, sure. You're supposed no, to say I you don't. like them all, but do you, I find you it don't. hard because there's um it's I'm very interested in how birds move and their ecology. Uh, and so every every bird has a different strategy to deal with that. So it they're all equally interesting from my point of view. I have some that I have mm like memories and connections with that put them higher up that list. But my drive is the biological question. So the favorite bird kind of disappears. 
Whereas you go you go walking with an ornithologist and they're like tick, they've got a list and they need all that all of those birds on that list and yeah. I haven't quite got to that point yet. I would imagine to be a successful study, you have to be quite. Uh, you're 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 trying to be as low profile with the birds as possible, right? You're trying to have as little interaction, I would imagine, as possible. But do you get to know these birds a bit? Do you get to spend any kind of <laughs> you get to know them time, afterwards? Or is it mostly just tagging and letting them go? What's yeah, that? exactly. You get to know them afterwards. So once the data's come uh-huh. back, you start to feel like you've got a connection through the bird because of the data. Yeah, that's the the unfortunate thing. It, it's what we have to do. You don't want to be invasive. That's the, the thing we're trying to avoid. Um, you don't want to disturb mm. them. So afterwards, mm. you get more of a, I get a connection with the data anyway, and I think most of us do, especially if that's long-term data and you can follow it over years and... Um, you start, you have a personality associated with that data. I have to be careful of that word. In science, personality is a controversial word. Sure. But um, yeah, you do. You, you get an attachment. I spent a long time at sea, and so I have this incredible affinity for the albatross is watching them at sea. And I... You know, I didn't spend a ton of time in the Southern Ocean, but enough to, that's where you usually see them. Mollyhawks more around Southern New Zealand and stuff, but just unbelievably impressive. You know, they can go from what I understand, uh, you know, when I was on a sailboat, we don't follow them very far, but (laughs) they're, they're there and gone, but they never flap their wings. They're using lift right off the swell. That's just. It looks so peaceful and calm and easy. Oh, just they just own it. Have mm-hmm. you studied? Have you studied the albatross? No, I Can haven't. You study them? Yes. So there's people, there's other movement ecologists or behavioral ecologists that are using the same devices, um, biologgers on albatross and looking at their movements and how often they flap and where and how they move and the energetics of that. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a fascinating a few different groups working on albatross, different species. Yeah, very similar very to the cool. like, the way that we think about the soaring, thermal soaring. Yes, it's a different type of soaring that an albatross is using, but there's still the same trade-offs that they have in their flight and their strategies for movement. So there's comparisons that we can make between land and seabirds. Something I would imagine most, especially predators, I would think, uh, engage in is play. And it, you know, when we when we fly, we see birds most definitely playing. They're not just hunting, or I mean, it certainly seems like it in any way. You know, that some seem a lot more fixated on hunting, but others just, you know, they're just doing loops and cruising. And I guess you know, maybe they're catching bugs too, but they're they certainly seem like they're having a really good time. Have you been able to document that? Is that something you see regularly in in birds? I would go towards the side of no, because we're trying to, it makes sense that every decision an animal makes should balance different trade-offs. Now, play could be interesting if that helps you practice flight. If it's something like that, then then it has a benefit. It shouldn't be wasteful of energy, especially if you're a soaring bird and then all of a sudden you're kind of screwed and you're 
you've got no mm. energy reserves left in it or potential energy, we say. So you, you're playing so much that you lose height and now you're stuck. Yeah, there should be a trade-off between a benefit and the cost. But I'm interested in that. Mm. What you think, so what, what do you think is play? Like, do you play as a paraglider in that can you afford to mess around? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's the whole acro side of of flying both in hang gliders and 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 paragliders and that would definitely be defined as play because you know what we're usually concerned about is our glide mm -hmm. and acro just destroys it you go down very very fast <laughs> so you're not worried about your glide anymore and you're just having fun or um but i you know certainly if you're if you're trying to go somewhere, then playing is destroying that. Yeah. You know, the trade-off is is steep. But if you're just, you know, the mountain right behind my house here, most, you know, 99 times out of 100 when I fly off that, I'm just flying to go play, just to, you know, just to have fun. And that could be, you know, doing maneuvers that are uh, you know, in opposition of staying in the sky. Uh so, you know, when I watch Falcons and not not as much with eagles. They usually seem pretty intent, you know. They're a more serious bird. But when I watch, you know, falcons and uh, they, the smaller kind of predators, they sure seem to spend a lot of time horsing around. And and again, I I I, I you know, we can't see the tiny bugs. You know, we mm -hmm. see them all the time when they're clearly hunting bugs when, you know, cause bugs get caught up in a thermal and that's often a real good marker. Mm -hmm. And when you start seeing all the little starlings and, and smaller birds, uh, you know, gathering them up, but they're, you know, kind of like you see manta rays do when they get in really thick plankton, they'll, you know, instead of just flying along like they normally do, they start barrel rolling because it's just a more efficient way to, to feed. So maybe that's what the birds are doing. They're just barrel There'll be loads rolling of the different, birds, you uh, could the, the buds, bugs. Say that it's feeding, it would could be practice, it could be testing the air, it could be, um, the, there's different pressures that are relaxed at a certain time, but play is a, it's an interesting word. It's a, again, a controversial word, I would say, because there mm. should be a reason for it. Mm. With it's interesting there you say like um, when you're messing around compared to when you're in the race, and this is why I'm interested in paraglider racing. I could look at comparing different aeronautical uh, relationships between birds and paragliders, but if I want to look at the decisions, then your behavior has to be similar. And so the race of a paraglider is what's most interesting to me because then you you have a goal, mm. which is what we predict animals have for every day like feeding is their goal mm. so the strategies should be similar then to make some comparisons but when you see you know up here in the northwest very much like where you're from in the uk when you know the the, the shorebirds that are soaring you know just the, your standard seagull um certainly they're not feeding or doing anything except just enjoying it aren't they they just seem like they're just cruising you know just back and forth and up and down and you know yelling at one another and yeah but sure what's the like overall goal of that movement there could be something at a larger scale mm. that we can't see which is why biologging i like it so much because you 
can relate a specific moment in time to an overall movement path at a scale we cannot follow them over. So you're seeing mm. one little part of their day when you're on mm. the ground at a seaside watching them. And who knows what information they could be gaining whilst they're playing or what, it, what you want ah. to define it as. Um, Interesting. I still think they're playing. <laughs> <laughs> so what what have you learned? I mean, maybe it's still too nascent. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I know you've been at this project. You were saying earlier, at least eight years. But what are we missing as pilots? What do birds, because, you know, that's always the goal is to, and we can sometimes, maybe I don't know how hard they're trying, but we can outclimb birds. Uh, you know, you get in the same thermal and, you know, that's always the goal, but they will never, you know, they, our best pilot, uh, pretty unarguably is a guy named Kriegel Maurer. And you've probably heard of him. He's called the Eagle and he's won seven X Alps in a row. And, you know, they call him the Eagle because he's so good at flying mm -hmm. and picking lines. But what I, anyway, my question is, what are, what do they know that we don't? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's the question for us too. It's um, why are they so good at it? It's, I mean, evolution has taken them down that route of um, needing to be good at it. If this is a strategy they're going to exploit, then they should optimize that, especially for such a heavy bird where if you get it wrong, it's incredibly costly. So evolution's got something to act mm. on the pressure. Uh, how they find these thermals or updrafts we don't know and the perception of a bird of different air we still don't know either and so every we're trying to get there to understand how they're able to do it so well and we're starting to get there with this technology but that's why i mean they don't have a vario in their brain well they might so they should be able to sense the air <laughs> once they're in it um for sure uh, and whether mm. that's something to do with uh, angles or pressure changes we're still exploring that but then how they see their world or what what is it they're actually looking for as cues of different airflows we're really interested in that and they could be static cues it could be other animals that are like what i'm interested in if there's a, another bird ahead moving in a certain way is there some way of understanding what the air is from that movement and I was listening to one of your other podcasts and you use the word instinct to be able to thermal and find thermals or do it really well. And that's what mm. we're trying to get at. How, how is it so automatic, seemingly automatic to fly so well? Yeah, I mean, they, they seem to just go to the right place. Uh, they, they seem to have just much more, their feelers are much more sensitive than ours are. Part of that may just be that we start relying more and more as we get better and better on our instruments. And that sounds opposite how it should be. But you typically learn you don't have a vario. You're just, you know, just worried about launching and getting to the ground safely. And then as you start thermaling, you start using instruments and varios. And, you know, we're always told and talk about on the show a lot, you should fly a lot without one to just develop that natural instinct and watch the horizon and try to feel the better part of a core of a thermal than, than just hearing the different 
tone mm-hmm. in the in the vario, but birds just have all of that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's ingrained, or certainly seems like it is. It's the e- the evolution of sensing movement. I mean, we do it in our movements, but we're used to walking uh, on the ground, and we can sense what we're interacting with in that environment, the floor or the substrate, if you're walking on sand or on something hard. But the birds should be doing the same. That's their environment. And we're, if we're going into it with technology, we need to learn from them how to do it. And that's what all of your senses are providing you with, the same information that they have evolved to sense. Paragliding is really risky because we're human and we're dumb and we make mistakes. Uh, and, and mistakes in aviation are pretty costly. The ground is hard. You, you said something there. I wasn't. I was kind of surprised to hear that. You know, when, if a bird makes a mistake, you know, especially if they're a big bird, it could be quite costly. Do they make mistakes? Mm-hmm. I've never seen a bird make a mistake. Do they crash or do they mm-hmm. get in badly or do they do they hit the deck? Yes, there are different, uh, definitely different mistakes. With the the condors um, in Argentina, there's a group there that have been working with them by uh, Sergio Lambertucci, and he as they've been looking at different anecdotes as well of what's happened and you'll often get birds that walking around and it's as if they've landed and now they've lost the lift and they've got to go find it and even anecdotes of condors walking up mountains to go and find lift um they have amazing legs and yeah if you can't take off from the ground where where you ended up landing then you've got to get yourself out of that situation to go find lift and you see it in different other ways uh if you make a mistake by landing at a carcass that's full of other birds and it's very competitive then you've made a costly decision Mm. and then also if you make a mistake and you miss a thermal or you arrive at a place where there's no longer a thermal for some if it's an intermittent you're between the thermal bubbles then you're going to have to pay the cost of flapping and expensive flight to get you to stay airborne um, and avoid that landing whereas for you guys for the paraglider you have to land and then some some guy's going to come and pick you yeah. up as I, I learned this summer that there's a lot of picking up mm. somebody with or a if you're in the race you just keep walking yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah every time i bomb out it just means i have to walk yeah so that's anyway, what a condor but... could be doing but it's anecdotal because we can't watch them all the time maybe with these tags we can try and understand when there's mistakes made but so far we're still trying to understand what's the difference between right and wrong or um, a decision that was made purposefully or something that they was unavoidable there's a long way to go yet to understand that which bird in your opinion is kind of the king of flight who who does it which bird does it most efficiently that's impossible to answer (laughs) <laughs> it's impossible <sighs> because they all are very different they've all got different strategies that they, they all um mm. have evolved to be the best at their strategy so a condor oh. is the the heaviest soaring bird so it's incredibly efficient at its type of movement but then it needs to fly in the andes and it's restricted it can't go fly anywhere because the the air to support them isn't everywhere so then maybe a all-rounder bird is a bit better that could do both thermaling and flapping like a stork, but then it's evolved a different way of life and can migrate. So everything's 
everything's awesome. They have all evolved to be good at what they do. Mm. Yeah. It's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. I, I had an experience with an eagle in Alaska. I did this Alaska Traverse a few years back who I was struggling to figure out how to get across a glacier in front of me. It was really, really late in the day. And I knew I didn't have the height to make it across the glacier and you don't really want to land on a glacier. Mm -hmm. uh, the crevasses, it was getting, it was also pretty late. So I would have landed and had to walk across in the dark, which wouldn't have been good. And so I was just trying to, kind of struggling with, should I go or not? Should I go or not? Should I try it or not? It was a long glide and there wasn't going to be any thermals over the glacier, you know, and this eagle came out of a tree and took me across it. It was like he'd read my mind and he knew where I needed to go. And he just came out and got right on my wingtip and kind of looked over at me. And and then he started flying towards the glacier. And I thought, well, hell, why not? Yeah. I'll give it a try. And he did. He brought me across the glacier. And as soon as I got across the other side, he took off. He just banked left and went somewhere else. Uh, just, I, so in my mind, he's the best. Okay. <laughs> but then are you watching them often? You must be watching them all the time and thinking about it. They're going to show I mean, you the way. They're, that's they're so our greatest marker. Yeah. They really are. I mean, birds are are really what you're trying to observe. And there are places in the world where there's tons and they're incredibly helpful. And there's places where you don't get much bird help. It just really depends. Yeah. Uh, even around here, we have lots of birds, but it depends on the day. It's, just, it's a funny thing. And then, of course, it depends on how high you are. You know, here we're very often way up over 15,000 feet. And, you know, you don't see a ton of birds out there, but you do. They're out there. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah. yes, I mean, they're, you know, if they're turning, like you said, I, I think birds try to fly pretty efficiently. So if they're turning, that's telling us that that's a thermal worth yeah. going to. Yeah. You know, we very rarely don't go to a climb that a bird is in. I mean, that again, it's most of the time it's invisible unless you've got smoke or something else that's helping you out or a big defined cloud that's clearly growing and marking a thermal mm -hmm. that, you know, the air is invisible and they see it better than we do, I'm sure. It's interesting, though, that you wouldn't say no to a thermal if there's a bird in it. If, the, if there's a bird in it, does that mean that it's big enough? It's still strong enough for you to, as a massive paraglider, totally. to use it almost always i mean there there are exceptions to that you know they they're clearly you know they're so much lighter and they're so much more efficient that you know they can suck you to a a, a thermal that is working for them mm -hmm. you know a very low rate for them too but it wouldn't be enough for us but most of the time they don't fool with those either you know they they're they're messing around with the better thermals as well and they don't they don't, they won't use yeah. that unless they really need to, I guess. I, I can't say that for sure, but, uh, usually it's very rare to go to a climb that a bird is in. that's not useful to us. Mm -hmm. It definitely happens. You know, often we're just too late. You know, we'll see them climbing by the time we get there, that thermals either, we call it pull the rope on you or pull the ladder up on you. It's above your head. You've missed it. Or it's just dying. You know, the thermals really cycle mm -hmm. with the day. So it's, you, you can miss it. But most of the time, a bird's a pretty good bet. There's so much you've said there that I'm interested in. I could turn this interview around. And so without asking you Go questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's a conversation. Yeah. We're having a conversation. Um, <laughs> I want to know, like, so if you, 
if you see another paraglider, then will you always follow it? Or because for me, no. as a prediction, it'd be you only follow those that are in stonking thermals and Great ones that observation. you see yeah. are experienced and more experienced than than you or better at that those that location, know the location well or something. Great observation. So the answer is no. Definitely, if you see another paraglider, that's not an automatic that you're going to them. I'm sorry, another paraglider that's turning. Mm -hmm. There, that's when the horizon really matters. So if you're in a two meter climb, for example, and someone in another part of the sky is in a four meter climb, that's pretty obvious that they're in a better climb and you should leave unless you can't if there's any risk of you leaving your climb and not making it to that climb, you know, in other words, you're not very high, uh, or that thermal's dying and you, and you know that it is, which is harder to tell, but then you wouldn't leave. But most of the time, you know, we're taught observation is everything in our sport. And if someone's in a better climb, you need to go to them. Mm -hmm. But if I'm in a climb and then somebody else is in a climb and I can't tell, you know, if it looks the same, then no, I'm going to stay where I am because my climb might get better. But if it's obvious they're in a better climb, I'm going. So you're exactly right. Birds are the same. Uh, again, I wouldn't leave if I'm in a really good climb, especially over the average of the day. You know, there's you start to kind of map the day with, you know, early on the climbs aren't very strong. Later in the day, the climbs are very strong. If it's in the middle of the day and climbs are really strong, you know, historically for the last hour, say for example, you know, you've been in three, four meter climbs, then I'm not going to waste time climbing in a two. And so you wouldn't move if I'm in a stonking climb and there's a bird over there and I can't tell yeah. if he's out climbing me or not, then I'm, I'm going to stick where I am. You're saying but exactly what I want to hear. Most of the time they don't, <laughs> What's that? You're saying exactly what I want to hear. Because this is the, mm. it makes so much sense. But trying to say that that's happening for a bird too, that's really difficult to grasp. Like just how much they mm. should be paying attention to others and whether they should say yes to every other thermal or balance it with what they're doing themselves and uh, make um, informed decisions. And that's what I'm trying to look for. It's interesting. The more I think about it too, you know. It was very surprising to me early on when I started realizing that you can actually outclimb birds. And I've always assumed that's just because they're not trying very hard. <laughs> you know, it it does, you know, they're clearly better climbers. And so, you know, I often wonder if that's just really on that scale of what you're talking about, the cost. You know, maybe they don't need the height and they're just really more observing and looking around. Cause there's I've often also been in really strong climbs that they've brought me to, but they leave. Mm -hmm. And it's still a very good part of the climb. I, I end up gaining another two or 3,000 feet or something in that same climb. And they just keep going. There's different theories so, for that. But maybe they got scared of me. Maybe they don't like being in a climb with me either. I'm awful <laughs> big. So, you know, who knows? But then if it depends um, if there's another thermal coming up. If, they, if there's an expectation that you've got enough height to reach the next thermal, then go for it with your speed. Go, go get some distance. Um, and mm -hmm. do that quickly rather than waste time in a thermal if you don't need that height to, to keep traveling. Yep. Again, different strategies. Um, totally. And and that's super important for us when we're trying to cover distance is, you know, maximizing all of that. And, you know, you don't want to waste time climbing in something that's 
you know, if it's if it's been a four and it drops to two, you have to leave immediately. There's no reason to keep climbing. You're just wasting time. Um, you know, every time we turn, as as Stephen Smoker said, is a very famous pilot in our community that and Kriegel talks about all the time. You know, every time we turn, or half the time we're going the wrong way. So you want to turn as little as you possibly can. And I imagine birds are the same. The the penalty points seem, you know, again, historic not always, but historically the percentages of winning following a bird are really high. Uh, typically, you know, their lines are almost always better. In other words, between thermals, mm-hmm. from one thermal to the next, uh, or just when there aren't even thermals, when they're just cruising through the sky, it's a pretty safe bet to follow their line and take their line. Mm-hmm. They just seem much more sensitive to a boatier, liftier line than we can ever feel so a lot of practice as well not only have they got the senses and different uh cues that they can use they could have that could be their territory for an eagle for example they have a territory and they could be flying that same route every day or every so often that means that they've got good practice and they should have an expectation of where that next thermal is fascinating so Back to your original purpose of the study, you're looking for, you're trying to decipher what they see and using other birds to impact their decisions, correct? Have I worded mm-hmm. that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, um, yeah. Have you learned anything specifically from that in terms of how other birds work around one another that could be useful for us or vice versa? Have you learned anything from paragliding that goes the other way? So this is it's the very start of this project. Mm. And as we were talking about funding as well, I'm, we're still halfway through that process. So um, hopefully the next few years will go really into this um, project with the how groups move to find thermals. But we have there are some things out there already about information that you can gain by watching another bird, information that birds can gain from each other. So we did some stuff on risk um, taking, that if you have another bird ahead of you, you can take more risks in the glide and increase your flight speed. So if you increasing your airspeed, then you're going to hit the ground quicker. So you have to guarantee that there's a thermal coming up and that's what information is doing. Whereas if you don't know and you're completely unsure of where that next thermal is, then you should conserve your height and fly slowly and cautiously. And, that and you, you th- that. now we're on to something. And you, you, you've seen that in birds? You, you've seen that that's we how they that operate? Part of my PhD was on risk flights with social, when you've got a bird ahead of you. And that could wow. say that you should fly together. And there's the other side of that with some, some of my colleagues here, at, um, Max Planck, that we're doing with uh, work with storks. This says if you want to keep together as a group because you want to maintain that information source, but then that means that the ones at the front are flying how they want to fly and the ones at the back have to keep up. So they might have to fly more. They have, might have to flap more, sorry, to mm. keep up, which is costly, but then otherwise you lose your information. So you have to keep up with the group and it has different trade-offs. So we're getting there. We're starting to see different aspects of moving in a group, how that's a benefit. But so, the reason I want I- paragliders is to understand what you're actually looking at which we can't do with a bird. But I'm still, every single word you just said is competition paragliding. 
I mean, that's yeah, okay. it in a nutshell. That's that's exactly everything we're thinking about is exactly what you just said. You know, the, in a typical you know free flight race, paragliding or hang gliding, there's 130 pilots and they're called race to goal. You know, so this is where you get driven up the mountain and you fly a course in the sky and everybody's trying to race it as fast as they possibly can. But uh, you know, it's very risky to go out on your own and get out ahead and not have the information. So it's this constant juggle of mm-hmm. of using everybody else. We call it pimping. Uh, you're using all the data from all the other pilots and still trying to win the race. So when do yeah. you break? You know, when do you when do you take some risk? When do you hold back? When do you try to stay on top? When you go out in front, so the, I mean, this is exactly what we do. Fascinating. It's the Ooh, same I thing. Know, I never even thought that birds would do that. Like, well, they have a race every day to get to the food quicker because they mm. they all land usually at one big carcass, and they're using information both to find thermals and to find the food. Most of these soaring birds are scavenging; they're not hunting. Eagles are still using soaring and hunting, but they can flap as well. So there's this, uh, again, another trade-off that means you really need to stay together with the group if you're reliant on thermals and the food is also something that is sparse. So, yeah, they have to keep together and their race every day is to get to that carcass first. But, again, a balance. You don't want to go it alone because then you could you could risk falling out of the air before you get to the food. Is your world in in terms of the studying birds? Is it very tight knit? Are, are there Max Planck Institute type places all over the world? You, you mm-hmm. mentioned the condors in South America and the vultures in South Africa. Do you all know each other? You all get to spend time on Zoom and compare notes. And how's that yep. all work? I guess our oh, kind of meets cool. are the conferences. Like with you, you got your races. Um, and different, and you would go, I guess, collaborate or network, and maybe fly with somebody else that you want to learn from or something. We're doing exactly the same, and we'll meet each other at conferences, present what we've got, and also the technology brings us together a lot of the time. That we are trying to make advances in how we capture animal movement. So even if you work on a completely different animal, and you're not working with birds, you're working with whales or with um, the primates here. You come together when you want to share that technology to to look at the question you're interested in. So, yeah, the people in Argentina, for example, are looking at different parts of the ecosystem from condors to mountain lions. They have different aspects that they're interested in, and then we we come together to collaborate on the specifics that we we share an interest in. You have the coolest job. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed. It's just so, it seems so, it's so great to be able to kind of follow your passion and find this pretty unique little niche. And, uh, I could see on your face how excited you are about it. It's what a fascinating project. Thanks for sharing it with, with me and the listeners and gosh, good luck. I, I and reach out if I can ever help. I'd love to be involved in this somehow. I'm the opposite of a scientist, but thank God for science. Well, I need paragliders now. Um, I'm very interested <laughs> in the races. So I hope next year I'll be working with um, some of the British team, hopefully through Malin. And then mm. uh, I, I hope to, to keep looking at different teams through these, these races. Yeah. 
see how you all move together. Uh, my hope is to yeah. tag all of you th- at once. So when you're in yeah. your race, you all fly out and all of you are like my like birds. There's something that's very difficult with birds is to be able to tag them all. You can't. But if you can tag all of the paragliders in a race, you know exactly who's looking at who. So I'll come yeah. find you. Yeah, do. Please do. Hannah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time and and good luck. And and thanks for sharing this knowledge. We'll 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 tap back in in a couple of years and find out what you've learned. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thanks. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime and hopefully in a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Thank you.